week, we'll talk about machine learning and data at enterprises. So we have a special guest today, Alexandra. So Alexandra is responsible for data and artificial intelligence at a consultancy called Koenigsegg. I hope I pronounced it correctly. My German is perfectly. I've lived in Germany for some time, so I think now I can pronounce this umlaut. Mm -hmm. But you might know Alexander not from his work at Koenigsegg, but from his involvement in the PyData community. So he's one of the organizers, or I should say chairs of the PyData conference. This is the biggest conference, the data conference in Berlin. My favorite conference a couple of months ago, like I was on the conference, it was in Berlin, it was like a really awesome conference. And actually from these conferences, I invited a couple of people to this podcast and Alexander is one of them. So I'm very happy that uh, you joined us today. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so before we go into our main topic of doing machine learning at enterprises, Let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Oh, it's a long story, actually. And actually, it starts like here <laughs> with the record. I used to study the law, actually. So actually, I hated IT in school, like Pascal. I thought that was like super boring. I couldn't put used to it. So actually, I was a music enthusiast in the 90s. Finally, I, I was DJing. Finally, I was co-owner of a record company. <laughs> and the company was actually doing pretty good. And there was no software around. Mm -hmm. That's why you have so many records on your background. Is it for those days? Yes, yeah, actually from those days. Yeah. So I have a tendency to make every stuff I'm passionate about and I care about also into my profession. So it's, it's very similar with data and programming and Python later on. And yeah, actually like the record company did pretty good and we had administration problems. There was no software around, so I had to build it. Well, I decided to build it. And so I taught myself programming with two books at that time. And from there it goes. So the record company didn't really survive the big crisis at the turn of the millennia, but it wasn't too bad because I was moving into programming. And as soon as uh, everything about machine learning started, I was just super excited, took all the courses I could get. Yeah. And decided to move on to the field of machine learning and AI. So now you work as a partner at Koenigsegg. Mm -hmm. So what, what does it mean to do, to be a partner? And what do you do as a partner? As a partner, of course, I'm responsible for my team with the team working on uh, data and AI topics to look for no, new people, of course, because Koenigsegg is growing. So I always look for support and projects if it's freelancers or uh, also people to uh, employees. Of course, we have to, uh, as a partner, I have to think about what's our strategy, which products should we focus on, which services, because it's a very broad field. And so we always try to narrow it down. And we have a tendency to like to work cutting edge state of the art. So just like implementing boring stuff isn't probably not our thing. Of course, some it's very often part of a more exciting project. But um, yeah, so this is my work. And so being also like partner and a founder of a boutique consultancy. And yeah, it's fun. Uh, <laughs> because it gives you also like a lot of freedom to decide what do you, you want to work on, which people do we want to work with. And this is not only like people we want to bring in our team, it's also like clients. So we, we would not accept any client. We say, okay, that's not a good company culture. 
they don't really share those same values. So we, we wouldn't just do it for the money. We would just like say, no, it's not a good fit because we like to get things done and not change lifetime against money because that's just a waste. <laughs> I'm just also curious about the word partner. So like I work at a product company and we usually, I don't know, like mm-hmm. chief technical officer or VP of engineering. So partner is not something we use as a term, as a job role. So this is, I guess, more common to consultancies yes. and also to law firms, right? So people who do services for other companies, right? Right. A partner means that you're responsible for an area of the company like well in your case it's ai right mm-hmm. so basically as a partner you're driving a certain area mm-hmm. in the company you're responsible for that and of course with all the support from other partners so it's we collaborate on things all the time but it's like a, i'm running a department but i can decide where i want to move so there's mm-hmm. except for like we meet partners we meet and discuss things we should do mm-hmm. or work well but it's not Nobody can tell me if we should focus on MLOps as we are doing now, or if we should do implement some other things. So this is basically my call to make. Mm-hmm. So basically the company consists of many independent units and each unit is led by a partner, right? And you're yeah. a leader of your particular unit. Yeah. So basically, but there's not too many. So there's, there's mm-hmm. uh, only five partners. So <laughs> and okay. it's not like, and because we also like, we currently grow and we especially grow in the field of data and AI and financial services. But for us, it's very important to work on stuff we care about as well. So, mm-hmm. and there's a yes. lot of stuff you could do, but it's too boring. But I imagine that uh, this is not a simple work, not an easy work, right? So you need to do a lot of stuff. You need to talk to clients. You need to think what should be the strategy, what you should focus on. Then you mm-hmm. also have people who report to you. And that's what you do as a managing partner of company. But that's just one thing. And I also know that you do a lot of other things outside of your, let's say, work. Mm-hmm. So you're a chair at PyCon PyData Berlin conference, right? You're doing many other things. And I also checked your GitHub profile. So I have mm-hmm. a link. So I went there, I checked it. And I saw that it's quite an active profile. So how do you manage to do all that? So you're a managing partner, actually, community. I, I don't have other hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your no, hobby, actually, right? as I said, I have a tendency, things I care about to make it or like combine it with my work. Mm-hmm. And the community is part of that. I enjoy the community. I love, the, especially in the Python community, I love the input. I love the Python community is has a very, very healthy culture. Mm-hmm. Also, but it's quite broad from the topics. You can find it astronomers, you can find web developers. And I think this is a very, very good mix because I believe in learning cross-domain is a very good thing to see people who work on very different topics to learn, hey, you have a similar problem. For example, talk, if you have image problems, talk to astronomers because they have real image problems <laughs> and they solved them already and they solved them probably with way less hardware than other people throw at it in the cloud. And, and I think there's always like, it's important to keep the exchange going. Of course, there's always like a lot of interest from academia, but academia can also learn from business or like business experiences. And I just like to go to conferences, talk to people mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's it's always very enlightening and joyful and uh, i like the atmosphere that 
there are no stupid questions culture. And this is one thing I I preach everywhere, also at clients, like there are no stupid questions. How did you become a chair? So you mentioned when you became interested in machine mm-hmm. learning, you took all the questions about this you found. And I guess at the same time, you started to look for local meetups, local communities. You started attending all these meetups, mm-hmm. right? There were no meetups, local meetups. Ah, so yes. this is how you became a chair, right? So you started no, to Actually, it was just like an accident. That's <laughs> just like, actually, actually, I my, my first PyCon was in Cologne 2013. And uh, this was my first Python community experience. And I decided to go to Europe Python in Berlin, just like across in the BCC again, where we have the conference now. And I heard about the Europe Python Society. And yeah, I said, okay, let's go there. It's free. And then they were looking for an auditor. And I said, yeah, okay, auditing books. EuroPython at that time was like to audit like 10 invoices a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the conference was still run by the local community. So it wasn't actually a lot of work. I was like, okay, I can, I can do it. So if nobody else wants, I can throw myself in. Man. So I met a lot of people. I interacted with a lot of people I've never met in my life with email. And we were building the Bilbao conference. And basically when I came to Bilbao. It's the first time I met like Alex Savio, Christian Barra, and many others who have been working on the Bilbao conference. And if you had asked me beforehand, can you organize like a 1,200-person conference no. <laughs> in Bilbao <laughs> by email remotely? Uh, I would have said, no way. Actually, it worked pretty well. So it was a great conference. It really worked. And, and while we were building the pro, because the Bilbao conference was a reset for EuroPython to run in a different fashion. And so basically everything was just like reorganizing. And so actually while we were building the process, I ended up being program chair with Alex Savio. And so, yeah, and from there it goes. And I don't really say I would like to organize, but I think like making things happen is very powerful. And of course, conference gives you a lot of room for creativity to try new things out and uh, and it's also like and you see okay it resonates with the community you help people who are not at the conference by recording the videos and getting everything together and yeah so i quite like that um so i just stayed on europython and from there just like went on one europython and sebastian and peter from castro nearby they came oh we should bring PyCon de to castro and i said mm, it's like it's a very connected area here. So we run PyData Sudwest in Mannheim, Heidelberg, Hansara nowadays. And so it's very close. And they said, hey, do you want to help you with the experience from your presence? I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> this is how I was became part of the German conference. And actually, I was just like helping a little bit on your side by. And then uh, the program chair left. And then uh, Valerio Macho just like wrote in the telegram channel, ah, Alex should do it. And I said, yeah, why not? So that's why I ended up like being involved in many conferences, but it's, uh, it's basically not my plan so to die. I more think about how can I not be involved in so many conferences? <laughs> no, I think we also have to consider we need to make room for fresh ideas. Mm-hmm. And so I'm currently just working on a European summit for organizers in November because, of course, organizing conferences and everything is, is a lot of work on a very few shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I've been investigating, is it different? Has everybody ever figured out running a conference, not being co-organizers, being basically burned out? And I haven't found one yet. So if somebody from the audience knows of one, please mm-hmm. contact me because we need to find new structures because the community is growing, the conferences is growing. The experience we want to provide 
to the community is growing. So we need to rethink how we organize and work on conferences because it depends on too few people. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you have to work on that. So that's why we are EuroPython. I'm organizing a summit in November and it, we will invite you know, organizers from all over Europe and discuss and also how can we help each other by mentoring and standardizing some processes because very often in the conference we have to local communities or new people reinvent the wheel for the fifth time and so maybe we can help that because it's it's the problem yeah so if anyone is interested please contact alexander yes and if you want to help on conferences contact me <laughs> yeah who knows maybe you will become the next chair of PyData PyCon in berlin right yeah <laughs> so I also noticed, so when doing a little bit of research, that you're a very active speaker. So not only you speak at mm -hmm. like all these events you organize, but maybe not on all of them, but your talks uh, appear often. Mm -hmm. And then actually, like in Google, you can put in a name and then look for videos, right? There is a special mm -hmm. tab. Mm -hmm. So when I did this with your name, I found 604 results. So did you actually do 604? No, actually, talks? I think it's... It's probably playlists or something <laughs> okay. else. So actually, I think it's a lot. I have stopped counting, but I think it should be something like a, a hundred. So I am mm -hmm. planning to recount soon because maybe uh, the hundreds talk should be something a little more, more special. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it just adds up during the years. <laughs> mm -hmm. None of this I'm asking is, well, some of this is yeah. what we prepared, but I, I'm really curious, like, because mm -hmm. I find problems sometimes getting inspiration, like, Okay, I probably have done something interesting, mm -hmm. but how do I package this as a talk? Like, how do I share this? How do I uh, find uh, materials to talk about? Like, this is a problem for me. So for you, like with 100 talks, you probably found like a way for you to generate talk proposals. Maybe you can share it. Not at all, no? actually. Every time I propose a talk and when I finally have to prepare it, I hate myself. So why am I doing this to myself? I lack time. And of course, for me, it's important to deliver quality talks. So I don't just sort of want to say, okay, this is a talk and it's some topic or like something people have seen before or something like that. Of course, I can narrow it down to a very simple formula. If you have something to say, you don't have to worry what you are to talk about. And a lot of the things, what should I talk about? Is it good enough? I can just like, if people think like, hey, it's just in your head. I'm sure you have like five topics you can mm -hmm. talk about and share insights and with the community and it doesn't have to be like the latest hype or like tech so yeah just like discuss things you learned when i do talks about something new and it's not only me actually i i am being program chair many conferences i know many speakers and of course we become friends and then we also like talked hey what about you and then actually i realized many people would say okay this is these are great speakers actually very often they talk about things they just learning and doing the talk and delivering talk is part of the learning phase. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not like you're an expert and then you are eligible to talk. And I think more value, and this is also what I'm trying to point out, no matter where I am, if it's in the community or customers, don't talk about the shiny things. They're nice. Yeah, you talk about them, but don't forget to talk about the mistakes you made and how you solved them and what were the problems were and where you were stuck because this is where we can learn from each other. We hardly learn from impressing each other with like cool stuff. So a talk proposal could be something that you don't know yet. 
but you want to learn, then you come up with a top proposal. And then uh, by the time the conference happens, like you have to actually learn this thing to talk about this. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not that tall notice. <laughs> so of course you probably, so for some, when I did the pandas talks, I was already working a lot with pandas, but mm -hmm. I did deep dives by providing pandas yeah. talks and also like thinking about, okay, what should we basically point to is pandas at that time? Because all the pandas tutorials were like, nobody was explaining the index at that time. And I think if you understand the index, nobody pandas, understands index except uh, maybe the creator. <laughs> That's why they don't talk about it. Yeah, this. but it's like, it's an important topic to say, hey, there's the index. It's a very important structure when you work with the data. And actually, you can do like really cool things with that as well, mm -hmm. which are really useful and big time savers. Uh, that was then. Uh, then I did the talk series about deep learning and AI, which was deep learning for fun and profit, taking blog posts and trying to do style transfer, text generation, speech generation, and things. It was quite fun, actually. Mm -hmm. I missed that a bit because I learned a lot about deep learning. I learned a lot about how to approach it. And of course, being partner of the consultancy, I also have to consider, oh, there might be also like customers there. So it can be toyful, but of course, it's what's also like the connection. What can you learn as a business from that? And the deep learning for fun and profit series is basically, yeah, you don't predict deep learning. You have to experiment. You have to be free to experiment and you cannot basically decide if something is going to fly or not. It was quite useful. Yeah. And yeah, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the range of topics. Uh, so it was the, the thing you mentioned for fun and profit was deep learning yeah. with PyTorch. Deep learning for... for fun and profit. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was quite enjoyable. Um, and that was fun. Of course, it was many weekends spent on making <laughs> this thing happen. But it's uh, it was really good because for me, I mean, like many people think a partner at at the consultancy, it's just like, oh yeah, you're just like manager. And I said, no, yeah, yeah, of course I'm also a manager, but I'm, I'm a generalist because also if I'm working with clients, for me, it's very important to understand the tech we're talk, discussing, we're working on. So I'm still hands-on. So it, I'm not just like on this level, ex please your team explain me this new technology. So no, I'm, I'm not the expert on everything, but I've always worked with everything and I can give like a, a very good insights it's useful it's not useful so and yeah that was the deep learning part and i had the was like okay there's there are so many misunderstandings and hype about data and ai and why they not work at companies not small or bigger companies and yeah but for example you were side by will talk about software engineering because i see there's still too many data scientists around who have not heard about it and your SciPy is an academic conference and students work with Jupyter Notebooks and if we really want to deliver something reproducible and stable, I thought about now it's time to give a talk what you really should know about software engineering. Yeah, yeah so the, your talks are quite diverse. So then you also have a talk about Pandas, you mentioned that, mm -hmm. MongoDB, and one of the talks or variation of talk I noticed quite often quite a few talks you had. Mm -hmm. So the topic is explaining AI to managers. And this is actually like the, the topic of today's interview. Mm -hmm. So like, I guess you as a managing partner, you need to do this quite a lot, especially like you talk to your clients, right? And then you mm -hmm. probably talk to people who no, do not necessarily have a lot of knowledge about machine learning, right? So then you have to explain all these things. This is how this theme appeared right this is how you started talking about this right yeah and actually like giving talks was really helpful to explain things to mm -hmm. other humans 
because actually it was when I started doing talks, I was really bad at explaining because it was too detailed. I was nested sentences and everything. Very often people said, oh, Alex, I cannot follow you. Uh, and then I said, and the talks also helped me to evolve personally to simplify sometimes because of course, if you work on software and you want to you want to deliver quality, you basically have like an engineer's mindset. And the downside is you want to be very exact, but sometimes simplification is not exact enough. So sometimes but you have to simplify mm -hmm. things to get the message across. So yeah, of course, this, this helped me a lot because the clients we work with, they are looking for state-of-the-art tech. They work with open source, but very often we also have to explain Proprietary software you buy is probably a solution. It depends on what you want to use it for. But data in AI is something you have to build. You cannot just buy it. It's not like a piece of software. And very often we also support people in the company to convince decision makers because many people in management, they think of data in AI. Yeah, that's just like a piece of software you buy and you hire people to implement. But it's not. Eh? Data in AI, it's, it's two things. Like, getting your data in order, you actually can use it. And, and if a company is older than five years old, the data is always like messy and distributed and you have to really work on how you organize your data, how you make it accessible. Or uh, if you were like, yeah, find new approaches for like more like AI-centric data. And on the other hand, of course, there is sometimes a software tool which can help or help for a part. And it's probably easier because... Not everybody has like tons of skilled developers. <laughs> that's, that's the other thing. And so our part is very often to help make the right calls. And then if it's implementation in open source, we are there to make it happen. So we're not dogmatic about open source, but I'm a strong believer is everything in analytics, prediction, data is basically why not use open source? It's way easier because if you buy software tools, you also have to learn it. And what I like to see, many decision makers, they don't want to be dependent on a piece of software from a supplier, which is probably a startup. They don't know, is it going to last? Or even like bigger software vendors, mm, they invent new products and two years later, they are gone. So, and we think, yeah, okay, just enable yourself, use open source, build up your team skills, start working with the community, contribute to community, and then you basically you have all the freedom you want. Of course, it's work, but if you miss a feature, you can just like go ahead and implement it. That's the beauty of open source, right? Yeah. So this topic of explaining machine learning to managers, for you as a consultant, like why is it important? Can you not just tell your clients that trust me, it works? So like it's a bunch of math, you will not understand it anyway. So why should yeah. I bother explaining? Trust me, it works. And why it's not working? People have to make decisions, of course. I mean, we, we're talking about like building software in a, in a larger team. Of, it takes budget. And of course, other people need to know, why should I spend the budget? Is it the right call? And of course, as we always say, nobody was ever fired for buying something from Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the other thing. Like, of course, if you hate as the IBM solution and people say, okay, let's buy this. And it's very often I call, but very often we still have to explain it's not software. Of course, we build software to work with data, to build models, but it's not a software project. And many people are not fully aware of that yet. It gets better and better. So I would say like five years ago, as many C-level people were not aware that 
basically open source or data scientist is something different than somebody who sets up your email, which is just like configuration. We are a dashboard because it's all IT and some I don't, they don't understand. Of course, it's also like nice to see this generation changes are happening. So more and more decision makers, younger decision makers enter the field. They know many of them know Python because studying, writing their PhD thesis, stuff like that. So it's getting better and better. But still, we need to support them also which open source tools they should use because there's there's always like there's a new framework every day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and what's the best choice? Or two. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. Uh, but on the other hand, it's always you have to see, okay, how long it's going to last because yeah. we lack resources. Everybody lacks resources. So we have to help them to make the right calls and mm-hmm. go for something stable, which can work for multiple years. So I wonder if this, this is also very helpful, like being around the conferences and interacting with the community. So I can have like a, a broad field of tools which are around there and can get like good advice on which is good, which is probably even better, but with a smaller community. And so probably it's better to use the other tool. Mm-hmm. So if I understood you correctly, the main think you want to solve with explaining AI to managers mm-hmm. is not to explain how actually, like, I don't know, the last transformer models work, right? What you want yeah. to explain is that in addition to this model that does this magical thing, there are many, many things around this that you yes. also need to think about, right? Like all this thing you mentioned, like it's not just data and AI in one box, mm-hmm. there is data, which is like a vast thing. And then there is AI component, like which sits in the center maybe, right? That's what you need to explain, right? Actually, what I need to explain if you're serious. For the first question, you have to ask, is this really in your, the strategy of your organization or is it something, oh yeah, we should try this. I've read it in the newspaper or seen something on LinkedIn. And I think the times, oh, we should try this and maybe, I think these times are definitely over. Now, even if it's in your strategy or if it's not, good luck. <laughs> so other companies will be eventually faster and better. So if it's in the strategy, people are fascinated by AI. They want to know about neural networks, artificial intelligence. And of course, there's a lot of science fiction ideas, hypes in their head. And very often I'm just going there, okay, and explain to them, okay, you actually don't have to worry about building a neural network at all. It's something you can just like get from the shelf. There's so much research on neural networks. So you maybe have to make a choice, but you never have to design your own neural network. Very few companies need to do that because, but then they're like super specialized AI companies. So basically, hey, the magic is already out there. You just have to scout it. We can help you making the right calls. The challenges. Establishing the right company culture, because I always say, get your data right to scale experiments, because you can never know where the real value will be for the company. Many things are good ideas, but I also have to explain, yes, for example, Google does a lot of research with ML and deep learning. And then there's also the the things that work in research some of them go to production and even then only 5%, it said only 5% survive there. So things which might sound plausible will probably not be the solution and things which you don't think about at all might be great solutions and you have to establish like an openness. So you need to establish 
culture, to get the data, to collaboration, to openly discuss problems. Because of course it's hard. You do something fancy with machine learning and who wants to do a presentation? Yeah, sorry, it didn't work out. But mm -hmm. we very often have this in projects. We say, okay, we're looking for a solution. For example, uh, a client of ours was looking for a solution in um, natural language processing. And they had like 30 years of research data and documents there. And they said, okay, yeah, keyword search is not good enough. So what about building a knowledge graph? I said, yeah, well, of course, let's do this. And then we started building the knowledge graph. But then we had to say, yeah, sorry, it's like 30 years of research, but it's still not good enough. The knowledge graph is not building up. So of course, you can get data from outside in, but we want to be one. I always have to look for what is the real problem you want to solve? What do you really want to accomplish? And here he was, okay, we need more insights. We need a better access to this corpus. And so knowledge graph was not the solution. So we say, okay, we don't say, we don't tune things and do a knowledge graph and have a nice presentation. I said, yeah, bye-bye. Good luck with the knowledge graph. Unless we address this, we do not believe this will ever fly into something useful. And then we say, okay, but we have alternatives. So here the alternative was, keyword extractions, finding entities, summaries, and actually then clustering. And then put this into a nice UI, and then they really had a very good, could get a totally different perspective on all their research documents to find out, okay, what was the better research at the time? Because of course, for them, it's not just we would like to look at this for, because we like to dig in our history. We're talking about research department. These research departments have billion figures. To work with so and of course if they know we researched this 20 years ago and it didn't work or it, we know why it didn't work it can help to save a lot of money and resources unless you reinvent the wheel and probably come to the same conclusion mm -hmm. and of course it's very open to be also like if there are problems to be very open and transparent with the clients and not just trying to work on the happy path <laughs> mm -hmm. of course I'm happy to say we always ended up in the happy path. So we, we never had like a total failure. We always like found a good solution uh, addressing the problem. But in between, it's quite a ride and you have to explain things because people also, uh, there's very often experts involved. And when we did that project, that was still a thing. <laughs> and of course, how can we use BERT? Yeah, we like to use BERT, but we don't really think it will help solving the problem we're currently addressing. And uh, yeah, we're not paid to play with the new newest tech. We are paid yeah, to develop value and help people to save time, to be more effective, to make better decisions. Would you say your biggest challenge in explaining AI to managers is conveying the experimentational nature of all these projects, saying that, okay, like, yes, there is this cool tech that you heard about from social mm -hmm. media, right? but it might not be the solution for your problem. So we need to experiment, we need to play with different tools and we need to have a proper way of evaluating if something is working or not, right? Would it be like the main challenge or not? Actually, I'm, I used to be a little bit more, I kind of say, like holding back in the past, but actually I learned to being really upfront is the best thing. Just to say, for example, we had a meeting at a client and somebody told me, okay, these, these are like, this is the input and was input from the Frankfurter Allgemeine about some AI camp somewhere. And it was, and I read the article and it was full of nice idealistic ideas. And there's like stuff people read about, yes, AI finished 
Beethoven's Unfinished Symphony. Then they said, I'm really excited about it. And I said, what is my answer to that? I said, hmm, I'm very sorry, um, but we have to accept the 10th symphony of Beethoven will never be finished because it has a very simple reason. Beethoven is dead and he never finished it. And I think Beethoven is an, a very good example because if you just go one symphony back and said, what if the ninth symphony was unfinished? We only had like eight. Of course, the unfinished symphony could be something that sounds like these symphonies he has composed before. But especially if you look at the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven with the choir, which is the European hymn and everything, this is invention. And AI at the current stage doesn't really invent things like that. It can very good repeat things it has learned. So this is a very good example explaining it with Beethoven because everybody gets excited and think, oh, this is such a great thing. And so, no, no, we will just like get the same thing we know already. And this is the strong suit, but... I don't think it's a good solution. And also, I think it's a little bit disrespectful <laughs> because Beethoven cannot say, has no longer the ability to say, no, this is not what I intended. So, but like stuff like be very, really upfront, but of course, it's very important to be respectful about it. And of course, there's many hypes. There's a lot of startups around who claim things. And there was one, and that's also like really good being connected to community because one of, of a startup was also like cited in, in the newspaper and then uh, uh, I said, yeah, yeah, we're already there. And basically how we acted was, oh, we are, we're basically on the same level as DeepMind. They cited us and this and that, we we already there yet. And I said, yeah, well, uh, actually the person who wrote the research paper gave a talk at a home meetup and actually the expert working on, on the topic gave us a little different impression when delivering the talk about the majority of, of the tech although the tech is still exciting, but of course it's very good. I can also like give good examples why it's not just hype and why I'm not just saying, oh, don't believe the hype. I can bring also evidence and to narrow it down and say, hey, what are you really want to solve? And I think the biggest issues are, are still company culture, like have expert domain expert and technical people and engineers work together on the same level as one team because bigger enterprises it's still there's the departments they have a requirement they write a ticket or use a story and then they just throw it over and our message is no no work in hybrid teams work on this together because we don't have time for paperwork and all this miscommunication in between but of course humans are not really good at changing routines we are your routine animals and so i think the bigger challenge than solving ai is actually changing human routines. And I think for me, it's also like one thing that absolutely belongs together. You won't be able to invent technology if you are not able to reinvent your company culture or if you already have one. Because like, for example, many startups, they, they start, they have this from, it's basically built in from the history. They're young, but especially big, larger enterprises, they go back decades. And of course, it's like multiple generations of people working there. And of course, it takes time. Mm -hmm. And uh, in preparation for this uh, interview, so you mm -hmm. also like I asked you, hey, can you think about some questions that I should ask you? <laughs> and then you came up with a few. So you added a few points. So I'll just read these points. Right? First one, innovation requires culture. And then the second, innovation requires patience. Mm -hmm. So I think we covered the culture part, right? So mm -hmm. we talked to like experimentational data-driven, you shouldn't be like, 
you know, just chase the latest trends from Twitter or whatever. But the other thing, this one, innovation requires patience. So what do you mean here? Like, why do we need patience? Will AI not just magically solve our problems like tomorrow? No, <laughs> no because I think patience is very good to make good calls. I give you another example. So it's probably without slides, a little bit hard to explain. So I gave a more extensive talk about this at High Data London, and it's on YouTube already. That's the same title as uh, our today's session. So basically, why patients? It was actually quite interesting because before I actually this talk, I was complaining like, oh, I hardly have questions from the audience. Probably I answered them already up front. I was actually making fun with Alessandro Saucedo about this because, hey, have to, you have the same experience. So, And then basically this was one of like where we really started a conversation after the talk because I was pointing out, hey, I like agile. I like retrospectives. And of course, there's like a lot of like scrum rituals. But what happens if you have, for example, you have like every three weeks, you do a retrospective. And we could ask ourselves uh, or like, what happens if you ask engineers and developers for problems? Will they ever say there is no problem at all? I don't know. Ask for problems and you will always get at least five problems because we are problem solvers. And of course, we always have problems at hand. And if you do retrospectives, for example, everything might be in order. But if you ask, okay, what can we improve? There will always be 10 tons of ideas to improve. But why not say everything's in order? We have accomplished this, the three goals were accomplished. We're on track. Everybody's happening. We have found a good working rhythm and say, okay, this is the retro. Let's finish after 15 minutes. Go for coffee or pick up work because everybody's always busy. Of course, they, we try to find more problems and try to over-engineer the whole thing as well. Because what I learned also like working with non-technical people Non-over-engineering is actually not an engineer's only problem. Many people do that, even in management. They try to over-engineer and ask too often, is there something you should improve? Is there something you should improve? And I said, no, no, patience. You just need to get more like a bird's eye view because things take time. And it was quite interesting, especially the retros and agile for data and uh, data science. It quite resonated with the audience. It was a great conversation afterwards. <laughs> So uh, interesting, I'm just taking, trying to somehow distill the main message here. So we as humans always want to look for ways to improve what we currently have. Let's say we have a product and it's doing, I don't know, let's say we have search, right? And search is working fine. Mm -hmm. And we as a humans, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, what do you want to improve? I can say, mm, like our search could be better, right? And then mm -hmm. it triggers the whole discussion of how we can make it better even though maybe we don't need really to work on improving search right now. Maybe there's something else to work on, right? Yeah, right. So if we work on also like maybe just lean back and watch what happens mm -hmm. because something has happened. I know we already know, okay, we should improve this. We should improve this. And maybe just like take a step back, work on something else and come back two, three weeks later and see, okay, is the whole thing really now not working anymore or is everything just like fine? Because of course, if you're very involved in not working on something, of course you see all the tiny bits that could be better, but are the tiny bits actually important for solving what you're working on? And I, I also fear working on too many details might also not be good because you lose the, the bigger perspective. Maybe there are other factors, especially if we work in data and AI, maybe you have solved the problem and you know how to even tune the algorithms even better, but 
maybe taking a step back could also be helpful. Okay, now the algorithm, what about like ethics and all the stuff? So like lean back, what does this really work? Is there anything in the data? And take also like some different perspectives on working on the projects and not just like over engineering the, the technical parts. And then in Germany, we have a saying, uh, das Gute, that is, the Perfektion ist der Feind des Guten. <laughs> so actually perfectionism is the, the enemy of the good. And then there's another thing I picked up from a software architecture book is actually it's uh, no big system will ever be perfect. I mean, that's like the nature of having like complex and bigger systems. They will never be perfect. They can never be perfect. So we actually have to deal and work with, okay, this is just like probably good enough. And it's still good engineering because as an engineer, I think, no, it's not perfect. So, yeah. I think a quote from, was it from Donald Knuth or somebody else, like from some famous engineers, was that premature optimization is the root of all evil, something like this? Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is also something... I also have to point out very often, we don't optimize for performance until we had a bottleneck because mm -hmm. I just know from experience when you try to optimize upfront, you will always optimize the wrong things <laughs> anyway. So that's the huge part of like communicating, being part of teams, making data and I help and also they say, hey, no, but stop here, like, wait, we should do something else and refocus and give advice on that. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, so there is a question that we have. So the question mm -hmm. is, sometimes we don't need machine learning or artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. How do we convince managers or business stakeholders to not use ML or AI when there are others who insist to use them? Very simple. So usually when I talk about it, I say, okay, we suggest like a reference architecture to our clients. So if you're serious about data, you need like a reference architecture, which is basically data in the data lake structure, data lake just being a concept, not the real storage thing, and making data accessible and accessible in a very consumer-friendly way. And of course, with all the governance stuff being taken care of as well. And even like in first meetings, when people contact us about data and AI, I very often say already, okay, and if we have established this reference architecture where you basically, okay, you can get the data. It's really easy. It's way easier to get the data. You don't have to research where is the data and pull these together because we're taking data projects. They often start from the wrong end. Oh, we have this idea. Where can we find the data? Yeah, you can do like hundreds of these problems, but you will just build a hundred zeros while doing it. So actually, if you're serious, it's like get the data right, do the experiments qualify or not. And of course, I also say, once with the data is right and very accessible, 70% of the data used will likely be just business intelligence and just like analytics, no machine learning at all. Because like having the data accessible, building or dashboards for business users is the problem solved. And then maybe another 20% will be machine learning. And if you're lucky, there's also like 10% deep learning, depending, of course, the domain. And of course, depending on the data mix, because but most companies still have numerical data. Of course, if there were like more unstructured data in the mix or images, deep learning uh, would, of course, a bigger percentage. But I'm not there just like to say, oh, we only do data and I. Okay, if you get your data right, you can have better standard analytics. That's also a good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's also like business intelligence is not our enemy. I see our goal is 
to save people time, to help them to make better decisions faster without handling Excel sheets and whatever mm -hmm. all day. And I also see, like, speaking of patience, mm -hmm. so I imagine a scenario where somebody comes, hey, we want to use this latest AI trends, and then but how about your data pipelines? Mm -hmm. Do you have, like, a lake? And then you build a lake, and then can we use data science now? Can we use artificial intelligence now? No, 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 wait. Like, there are cases where we can solve, like, with analytics, right? Ah, okay, well, I always say the lake, doesn't have to be full like if it's like 10 percent uh -huh. already or if there's some data in there you can already start it it's more like about like the right mindset like mm -hmm. okay get the data right and not look for nice machine learning or deep learning ideas mm -hmm. and then the exactly. research data because then you will likely have some export a dump from the database and you basically you're just like being disconnected from the system because of course if you really want to build efficiency, you have to bring it to production. And then, of course, the solution for this is MLOps. So like, hey, there's new data, retrain the models, like close the circle, because there's also like a lot of machine learning engineers or data scientists, they also spend a lot of time like building models, releasing them, putting them somewhere. And so MLOps is actually currently the best thing you can do to become effective and get things done. and let people think about the problems and not just like wasting time on doing like stuff you can automate. Mm -hmm. So would you say that MLOps is the best recipe for machine learning in all these enterprises or it's something else? Yeah, definitely. Because it's MLOps, because MLOps is, that's, that's probably another thing I always preach. It's not just programming. Everything we do is also like a standard decision. We don't have to standardize things. We have to settle a whole company. Let's work on this standard. This is how we do things. Because, of course, if you just like it as a company and you have like 20 data scientists and you don't see, okay, what's the common standard? How do you want to build CI CD pipelines and all this? If you have 20 people, you probably have 30 different approaches running CI CD pipelines in the company. And then cleaning it up is basically impossible. You can really, so of course, this is also another, another patient part. Don't Think about, okay, how can we deliver things in quality and increase the quality rather than thinking about making many, many, many different approaches happen or not. So it's very, very important to, to standardize, to think what's a good standard, also like to question standards during the process until it's basically at the best level. Mm -hmm. To be honest, like MLOps feels uh, lately because of all the buzz around this mm -hmm. uh, world, it feels like a buzzword, right? So people mm -hmm. would throw... MLOps everywhere. Like, how do we solve it? Ah, oh, with MLOps. Uh, what do we do here? <laughs> Let's do MLOps. And imagine like important people from McKinsey, all in suits, delivering a presentation in PowerPoint, and then they have MLOps like with big letters there mm -hmm. saying that it will solve all your problems. Like, do you also have this feeling that people just talk about MLOps without really knowing what it is? Of course, it's the same. I mean, we've experienced it like it was the big data hype. Everybody, yeah, yeah, we do big, big data. So uh, why is your data not in order when we want to start deep learning projects now? So, of course, there's always big hype. And of course, we also have to be really critical. People push for good news. We consume stuff on social media, LinkedIn, and it's hardly questioned. I try not to be too much on LinkedIn because we always get the impression everybody has solved everything and we're basically the last. Then <laughs> you go to clients and you say, okay, basically I've made a, a travel 
in the past or like for 10 years because I have to make some efforts to explain things, bring in new concepts, get new ideas. And so it's always like a hot and cold bath. But of course, there's many people who talk about ops and actually have no clue. And sometimes mm-hmm. if you look at larger consult, like really big ones, I have met many people or if I'm at clients and look what they delivered, I always see like, okay, yeah, you basically have no idea. You basically just copy paste and do something and mm-hmm. you don't have an understanding. So when we discuss ML ops, I don't put big letters there. I just put there was this great paper on ML ops from the KIT with the whole detailed process. And then we just go there, okay, where are you now? What can you already do? For example, like data exploration. I mean everybody can do that. At least if you think about considered ML ops this to do, you already probably have like part of a research line. And then you can see, okay, what do you already have to solve? Which pieces of the puzzle are already in place? What do we have to work on? And of course, having like this very detailed process, we can all mm-hmm. say, okay, sometimes if we work in finance, if we do a lot in finance or insurance. And of course, there are like also regulatory measures. And they say, okay, do regulatory measurements um, also fit in? And of course, if you have like this nice detailed process to see, okay, before we release a new model, probably somebody from the department has to sign off. Not because we don't trust the tech, but it's part of the regulatory process. And then you can just like see, okay, this makes a whole picture. And we already discussed like, okay, how can we solve it? What is there? What is not? Because nothing is a self a thing for like a purpose in itself. So of course we MLOps and I love MLOps <laughs> because it's just like saving a lot of time and helping to build better things. And yeah, so I think it's the, the right way to go. Although it's a lot of work from the most companies. <laughs> so MLOps, would you say it's more about processes, right? About the process yes. that you have to follow rather than process. tools. Because my impression from all these companies that offer MLOps solutions that they generate a lot of, you know, they say, okay, we are the MLOps solution, right? While it's not just about tools, but rather how you structure your process, right? The problem is also like they always want to, okay, you need to use the platform. You need to put the data there. And there are many companies that, hey, no, we can't. Mm-hmm. We don't trust a startup because of course you maybe have a funding and maybe you're gone next year and then you have the data. And of course, also like they plan mid and long term. So we're not looking for, okay, we need a solution which works short term. Of course, everybody's happy if there's a quick solution for everything, but We need to be able to run long-term because if you have like millions of customers, you cannot say, oh, sorry, (laughs) wrong startup. We cannot longer Mm -hmm. deliver this or this is stuck or we have to do it manually now. So of course, there are many things to consider. And and of course, many of these platforms are also limited because as I mentioned in in the beginning, freedom is very important to most clients to say, okay, we need this feature. We want to implement it. And the suppliers or the software vendors for that and waiting for uh, responses. This is no way for us because everybody has the experience. You file tickets, you never get an answer, even if it's something urgent. Mm -hmm. And this is basically a thing. And of course, what I'm also mentioning, so because I would suggest MLOps only to companies, if you have like a decent team of experts around in the company. I would not suggest, oh, we want to move into data science now. We have hired three junior data scientists and we should do everything probably from the very beginning and do MLOps. I would say this is a very bad idea because 
And then, of, of course, it's complicated. It's a lot of work to get everything right, to get like this automation level. So you need to have in-house skills. Of course, we can, from Quirinxvig, always help building the skills, help building MLOps and other things all in data and AI, but it's not an easy problem. Of course, it just looks easy because it makes sense, but there's a lot of details to work out. So if somebody has questions who may and they want to ask you, or maybe they want to apply to that position at PyData that you mentioned, or maybe they want to ask for your advice, uh, maybe to help their companies, how do they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alexander. And Alexander Handoff is actually really easy to find. You can find me on LinkedIn, also on Twitter, although I very often miss messages from Twitter. So probably the best way is, is just like write me on LinkedIn or just if you're at the conference, just come by and say hello. Mm-hmm. And any PyData conference, right? And he'll be there. No, I think I, I have Just European ones, right? I'm actually pretty <laughs> close to PyData Miami, but we are on holiday. Mm-hmm. because that's on the 27th of September. And actually, I'm, I'm close by, so I was tempted, oh, I could go there, but actually other plans, we actually mm-hmm. plan for Disney World. So mm-hmm. I cannot say I could <laughs> go to PyData, to Miami. So yeah, mostly the European ones. Mm-hmm. But of sure, also like around the world, again, we're still like coming back from COVID and pandemic. Mm-hmm. So so what's the next one? It's your sci-fi end of the month. So I'll be there. Uh-huh. It's also handy. It's close by. It's only two two hours by train. No, thanks a lot for the chat. I see that we went a bit over time. Oh, sorry. So yeah, sorry thanks for, for joining us yeah. today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Like really nice conversation. Thanks a lot. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, your expertise. And thanks yeah. everyone for joining us today as well, for asking questions, for listening. Thanks for organizing the podcast. Yeah. Well, in online it's uh, not as difficult as offline like, i cannot mm-hmm. imagine what you need to go through to actually organize things offline because online is just a zoom call and that's mm-hmm. it. but offline that's entirely <laughs> different level so i really admire your work thanks for doing this <laughs> thank you okay well have a great weekend everyone yeah and, uh, see you soon thank you bye bye bye